0: Welcome to The Set of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Shorstein Lesnetsky and Guyon, and each week I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's Florida DCA and Florida Supreme Court decisions, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So whether you're on your way to court, taking a job, or otherwise have some time to spare, Join me each week to get your dose of the latest criminal case opinions. Welcome back to the site of the crime. Today we're going to be talking about the Florida case law update from September 12th through September 16th. We have eight cases to talk about uh, today. There was one case that came out of the Florida Supreme Court, uh, two out of the first DCA, two out of the second none out of the third, two out of the fourth, and one out of the fifth. So let's jump right in. Uh, Our first case on today is Mosley v. State, and this is a Florida Supreme Court case that was released September fifteenth, 2022. Mosley is a death case, uh, resentencing out of my very own Duval County, and Mr. Mosley was convicted of two murders. He was sentenced to life on one of those murders, and he was sentenced to death on the other by a jury vote of eight to four. After the Florida Supreme Court decided in Hearst that death sentences must be pursuant to a unanimous verdict, the court affirmed Mr. Mosley's conviction but remanded for a new penalty phase. During the second penalty phase, Mr. Mosley represented himself and the jury unanimously voted that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating circumstances and recommended death. Mr. Mosley uh, accepted the trial court's offer to have counsel appointed to represent him at the Spencer hearing. Seven days before the hearing, Mr. Mosley filed a motion entitled Unequivocal Demand to Immediately Represent Myself Pro Se. When the hearing began, the prosecutor brought up Mr. Mosley's motion. But the motion was never addressed after that. Instead, the hearing turned towards addressing a motion for a new penalty phase trial. The trial court denied the motion for a new penalty phase and asked if there was any reason why sentence should not be imposed, and Mr. Mosley's counsel said no. The trial court sentenced Mr. Mosley to death and addressed Mr. Mosley's motion to represent himself, but asked about it in relation to an appeal. Mr. Mosley stated that he wanted to represent himself at the Spencer hearing, and the trial court responded that we were well past that. Mr. Mosley's appeal followed. The issue on appeal was whether the trial court committed reversible error by failing to address Mr. Mosley's motion to represent himself at the Spencer hearing. The Sixth Amendment provides the accused a constitutional right to conduct his own defense. An accused may waive the right to represent himself. A request to represent oneself at trial can, in the trial court's exercise of sound discretion, be denied when it is untimely. A motion made well in advance is timely. One made on the eve of trial or after trial has begun makes it difficult for a trial court, without granting a continuance, to explain to the defendant the significant responsibilities that attend self-representation. A court may, in its discretion, give weight to those considerations in denying as untimely a motion for self-representation. Subject to these considerations, once a defendant makes an unequivocal demand to represent himself, the trial court must conduct a Ferretta inquiry to determine whether the defendant is knowingly and intelligently waiving his right to counsel. A trial court's failure to do so is per se reversible error. A court may deny a defendant's demand for self-representation without a Ferretta inquiry if the demand is not made unequivocally and a court may deny an unequivocal demand without a forensic inquiry if, but only if, it finds with or without regard to timeliness, the demand is designed to delay or disrupt proceedings. Here the court found that Mr. Mosley's motion was untimely and that it was filed after trial had concluded, but there was no basis in the record to doubt that Mr. Mosley wanted to represent himself and the trial court had ample time to consider it. However, the trial court did not explicitly state that it was denying the motion because it was untimely. Rather, the court found that the trial court deferred consideration of the motion until it was moot. And this, according to the Florida Supreme Court, was per se reversible error. The court also addressed Mr. Mosley's challenges to the penalty phase. The court found that the trial court's limiting of cross-examination was within its discretion where the court wouldn't let Mr. Mosley question a witness about hoping to get a sentence reduction for testifying where the prosecution and the court had not no power to reduce the witness's sentence that was already imposed. While bias, bias on the part of a prosecution witness is a valid point of inquiry in cross-examination, the prospect of bias does not open the door to every question that might possibly develop the subject. The court also found that the trial court did not err by preventing testimony from Mr. Mosley's mother that his father sexually abused two of his sisters because there was no testimony that he had personal knowledge of the abuse or how it affected him. Mr. Mosley also argued that the trial court erred by failing to instruct the jury that it must find beyond a reasonable doubt that the aggravating factors were sufficient to justify death but the court noted that this was an incorrect statement of law. The sufficiency and weight of aggravating factors in a capital case are not elements that must be determined by the jury beyond reasonable doubt. Finally, Mr. Mosley argued that the trial court erred by refusing to consider a motion for an evidentiary hearing based on newly discovered evidence, but he filed it pro se when he was represented by counsel, so he was not authorized to file the motion in the first place. Case remanded for a new Spencer hearing and sentencing hearing. Our second case today is Kerala v. State. It's a Florida first DCA case and it was released September 14th, 2022. Kerala is a written threats case, again out of my own Duval County, addressing what it means to send a threat and what a threat is. The case was PCA'd, but Judge Tenenbaum wrote a well-reasoned concurring decision that analyzed the case and the statute at issue. Mr. K. Ralla, displeased with being removed from the courtroom in a family law case, expelled his hostility through a written threat sent through the clerk's office online comment box on the jury services page. The message stated, This message is for you, the no-good, low-down bastard Mark Mahan, and his administration. I'm coming for your no-good ass. I'm going to deal with you. Don't be mad because I haven't forgot about you. You incompetent political bastard. I got you peeped. Also... Like the other no good O.L. bastard John Rutherford. You ain't got rid of me. Remember Allah has my back. I got something for your ass. Go back to the pits of hell where you came from. No good low down bastard. Tell the devil that made you that you are not sufficient and your incompetence has made uh, you low down some of shit. No good bastard. Mr. K. Rolla admitted to detectives that he sent the message to VENT. Section 836.10, the written threat statute, states, any person who writes or composes and also sends or procures the sending of any letter, inscribed communication, or electronic communication, whether such letter or communication be signed or anonymous, to any person, containing a threat to kill or to do bodily injury to the person to whom such letter or communication is sent, or a threat to kill or do bodily injury to any member of the family of the person to whom such letter or communication is sent, commits a felony of the second degree. Judge Tannenbaum first addressed whether the message was specific enough to be considered a threat. The statute does not define the term threat. The judge noted here that the court did not have to address whether this message was a threat because it only had to determine whether in the light most favorable to the state, there was evidence from which a rational trier of fact could conclude that the message contained a threat. And here, Judge Tannenbaum and his concurrence believed the written message in conjunction with his oral statement that he was upset with the judge was sufficient. Judge Tannenbaum next addressed whether the message was sent within the meaning of the statute by being sent through an online comment box submitted to the clerk's office. The term send at the time the statute was enacted generally meant to cause something to go, to be dispatched, or to be carried. To send is an action that is complete upon the objects being set in motion with a destination in mind even if the object does not actually reach the intended end of the journey. The statute has criminalized merely the act of causing a communication to go or to be carried to the person the perpetrator intends to threaten with violence. It does not make a completed crime depend on whether the threatened person ever receives the communication or is affected in some way by it. Therefore, the crime is complete once the perpetrator puts those thoughts down in a readable medium and puts the communication on its way in the direction of the target. Case affirmed. Our third case today is NAP v. State. It's another Florida first DCA case that was released on September 14, 2022. NAP is a lawfulness of a traffic stop case out of Escambia County. Law enforcement observed Miss uh, Knapp leaving a known narcotics dealing location, so they conducted a traffic stop. Now, the justification for the traffic stop was that her rear-view mirror, or excuse me, her rear-view window was blocked with shoes, pillows, and blankets. Florida Statute 316.2004, Subsection 2B, states that no person shall drive any motor vehicle with any sign, poster, or other non-transparent material upon the front windshield, side wings, or side or rear windows of such vehicle, which materially obstructs, obscures, or impairs the driver's clear view of the highway or any intersecting highway. While issuing a citation under the statute, a canine arrived, conducted a canine search, and alerted to the vehicle. Officers found drugs and paraphernalia in the car. Miss Knapp filed the motion to suppress the evidence, arguing that the initial stop was illegal. Miss Knapp's argument was that the statute should be interpreted to prohibit blocking rear windows with items like those specifically listed in the statute, signs, posters, and other non-transparent materials that are placed upon the window. The trial court denied the motion, and Miss Knapp appealed. The first DCA first discussed the canon of statutory interpretation called a justum generis, which stands for the proposition that when a general word or phrase follows a list of specifics, the general word or phrase will be interpreted to include only items of the same class as those listed. However, this canon only applies where the statute is ambiguous. Here, the first DCA did not address whether the canon applied. In this particular case, and didn't rule on whether the statute includes items that are not affixed to the rear view window, because even if the officer misinterpreted the statute, because the mistake was objectively reasonable, the exclusionary rule does not apply, and the evidence should not be suppressed. Case affirmed. Our fourth case today is Mor v. State. This is a Florida second DCA case that was released September 16, 2022. Moore is a, an illegal sentence case out of Hillsborough County. Mr. Moore was convicted of one count of armed burglary of a structure using a motor vehicle as an instrumentality causing damage in excess of $10,000. And he was charged with 35 counts of grand theft of a firearm using a motor vehicle as an instrumentality. The trial court sentenced Mr. Moore to 40 years on the armed burglary and then entered a general 40-year sentence for all of the grand theft counts. The judge issued the general sentence both orally and in written order. A trial court may not impose a single general sentence to cover multiple counts. A general sentence aggregates all of the defendant's individual crimes into a new whole. Because the trial court did not impose an individual sentence for each grand theft count, it was an illegal sentence and the case must be remanded for the court to vacate the general sentence and enter a separate distinct sentence for each individual count. Case affirmed in part and reversed in part. Our fifth case today is Tillman v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released September 16, 2022. Tillman is a sentencing error case involving conflicting oral and written pronouncements of sentence. Mr. Tillman entered pleas to several separate cases of failing to register as a sex offender. On one case, the judge orally awarded Mr. Tillman credit for time served. Although he wasn't entitled to it because it was a consecutive sentence, the court did have discretion to award it. The written order awarded no credit for time served on that count. It is well established that a trial court's oral pronouncement of the sentence controls over the written sentence. Because there is no indication in the transcript that the trial court intended anything other than to award Mr. Tillman jail credit, he was entitled to that jail credit. Case reversed in part to conform the written order to the court's oral pronouncement. Our sixth case today is Baker v. State. This is a Florida 4th D.C.A. case that was released on September 14th, 2022. Baker is a 921.0024 Subsection 2 illegal sentence case out of Martin County. Mr. Baker entered an open plea to one count of lascivious battery, 22 counts of possession of child pornography, and two counts of child pornography. His guidelines were 339.9 point six months, or 28.3 years. The trial court sentenced him to 480 months, or 40 years, on all counts concurrently. Section 921.0024, subsection 2, states, The permissible range for sentencing shall be the lowest possible sentence up to and including the statutory maximum, as defined in section 775.082 for the primary offense and any additional offenses before the court for sentencing. If the lowest permissible sentence under the code exceeds a statutory maximum sentence as provided in 775.082, the sentence required by the code must be imposed. If the total sentence points are greater than or equal to 363, the court may sentence the offender to life imprisonment. The Florida Supreme Court has stated that if the lowest permissible sentence exceeds the statutory maximum penalty in section 775.082, the lowest permissible sentence is both the minimum sentence and the maximum penalty for that offense. Here, the lowest permissible sentence exceeded the statutory maximum on all counts. Because the total sentencing points were greater than 363, the sentencing court only had two options, life sentences or 28.3 years. Therefore, the sentence of 40 years was illegal. On remand, the trial court must sentence Mr. Baker to 28.3 years because any other sentence, including a consecutive sentence, would be greater than his original sentence, which is not allowed. Case reversed and remanded. Our seventh case today is Robinson Robinson v. State. This is a Florida fourth DCA case that was released September 14th, 2022. Robinson is a driving with suspended license case out of Broward County that involved knowledge of the suspension. Mr. Robinson was charged with driving with a suspended license. And at trial, the state admitted his certified driving record which stated that his license was valid and was issued on October 10, 2020. The address on the CDR was to a residential reentry program where Mr. Robinson lived after getting out of prison. Before that, he was homeless. The CDR listed a failure to pay and that notice was sent of his suspension, but it did not indicate where the notice was sent. No testimony was submitted regarding Mr. Robinson's address at the time the notice was sent. Mr. Robinson moved for judgment of acquittal on the grounds that the state did not prove that he knew his license was suspended. The trial court denied the motion, and Mr. Robinson was found guilty. On appeal, the 4th DCA first laid out the elements of driving with a suspended license. First, the driver's license was suspended. Second, the defendant had knowledge that the driver's license was suspended. Third, the defendant was actually driving. The element of knowledge is satisfied if the person has been previously cited or the person admits to knowledge of the cancellation suspension or revocation or suspension or revocation equivalent status or the person received notice. Regarding notice, the state is required to prove that DHSMV mailed the notice to the last known mailing address. Here, the driving record didn't provide where the suspension notice was sent and there was no evidence of Mr. Robinson's last known address on file with DHSMV during that time period. Case reversed and remanded for entry of judgment of acquittal. Our eighth and final case today is Winners v. State. This is a Florida 50 CA case that was released September 16, 2022. Winners is a 3.850 ineffective assistance of counsel case out of Putnam County. Mr. Winners appealed the summary denial of his 3.850 motion. The 5th DCA withdrew its opinion from July 8, 2022 and substituted this opinion in its place. On appeal, the 5th affirmed the summary denial based on jury misconduct because it could have been raised on direct appeal. The fifth also shot down Mr. Winner's argument that the trial court erred by summarily denying his claims without providing him an opportunity to amend the motion. Spira v. State, a Florida Supreme Court decision held that when a trial court determines a defendant's motion to be legally insufficient, the court abuses its discretion when it fails to allow the defendant at least one opportunity to amend the motion. Here, the fifth determined that Spira does not apply because the trial court's summary denial wasn't based on the insufficiency of the pleading, but rather because the record conclusively refuted his arguments. However, Mr. Winters was successful in his arguments on three other grounds based on an allegation of a Brady violation that the 5th DCA found was not conclusively refuted in the record. Therefore, the court reversed in part and remanded for the trial court to either hold an evidentiary hearing or to attach evidence in the record that conclusively refuted the alleged Brady violations. Case reversed, in part, and remanded. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Shorstein, Lesnetsky and Guyon. And this was another episode of the Side of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to The Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the episode description for timestamps for each case in each jurisdiction. Thanks for joining us at The Site of the Crime. See you next time.